Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Open Floor Podcast. I'm Ben Golliver. Andrew Sharp continues to be on vacation. It's the longest vacation anyone has ever heard of. But don't worry, I'm here in L.A. running a halfway house for basketball nerds, and I've got my latest guest. Now, Andrew came and visited not too long ago. I had Rob Mahoney a little bit uh, after that. Now, I've got the one and only ESPN NBA insider, Kevin Pelton. Kevin, we go back a long way, as I'm not sure people know that. How are you, man? I'm well. What have you been up to since the last time we did the D'Antonio Wincast? Right. So for our open floor listeners, you guys might not know this. Kevin and I hosted a basketball podcast way back in the day. I believe the first episode was in 2009, the 09-10 season. And that was when I coined you KP2 because in Portland, where I was, you were up in Seattle, as you still are. Uh, KP1, obviously, or the original KP was Kevin Pritchard. Uh, I hope you've had a better summer than Kevin Pritchard. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't think he's too happy with you right now. I mean, the best part of that story is that he was KP1 and I was KP2. I, I worked for him later with the Indiana Pacers, and he actually called me KP2. See, I've been creating memes since before memes were a thing on the internet. Now, the funny thing about the D'Antonio Wincast for people who haven't listened to it, which I'm assuming is 99.9% of the people listening to this podcast, was... We bantered about very hardcore NBA statistics and analytics before that was really a thing. And then we interspliced it with like hardcore rap music cuts. <laughs> Whether it was, I think the theme song was Cameron, Sports, Drugs, and Entertainment. Absolutely. And if you go to the page, and I went to the page on iTunes because somehow it's still up. Wait, is the Zune page still up? Because oh. that's what I thought was the funny thing about the Dutch Audio Wincast, that we had a Zune feed. Yeah, we had some Microsoft-based fans at that time who insisted we set up a Zune feed to complement the iTunes feed. Uh, needless to say, this was a pretty deep-cut podcast. But our first podcast review, if you go back and look, is great basketball talk. The music is terrible. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> so thankfully, we've stripped out the music. We've turned over the production. I think another hallmark of that podcast is that we were pretty much conducting it on like rotary telephones. I mean, the audio quality was terrible. Hopefully, we've we've come a little uh, a little way here in the last you know seven or eight years. One other thing I should mention about the podcast: we did more reunion episodes than we actually did original episodes. <laughs> like we kept coming back after six months, remembering that we had a podcast, and it's like, hey, what have you been up to for the last six months? Uh, the Blazers just lost Greg Oden to his seventeenth knee injury. We should probably talk about this. I mean, the the time he fractured it was it was a fractured patella, right? Yeah, yeah. So when he really went down, I mean, the one that I would consider the career-altering injury, I was in the building. And I went running down the steps in slow motion uh, down to kind of be the TMZ photographer who's going to follow the stretcher off the court. And the next day I happened to be sick and we recorded a podcast, right? Yeah, I mean, I remember going through it blow by blow. And I, I wasn't in the building for that game. I was watching at home. Well, I happened to be sick and I think people thought that I sounded suicidal <laughs> because I was sick. And it was like I was upset about the way that it happened. Obviously, it was horrible uh, to, to witness but if you go back and listen to it, it's sort of like an Elliot Smith version no, of a no, podcast. No one will go back and listen to yeah. that. I think that's safe to assume. <laughs> anyway, I wanted to set the stage here because I've known you for a long time. I need you to tell the story about how we first met, and I need you to tell it honestly. If you don't tell it honestly, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to correct the record. So you go ahead and tell the story about how we first met up in the uh, upper deck section of the Moda Center, and it's amazing. That is such a fertile ground for sports media. I mean, that's giving myself a lot of credit, obviously, but 
I met you up there. I met Chris B. Haynes, who was one of our guests up there. I mean, there's been a lot of talent that's gone through that uh, kind of we'll let anybody in as long as they're sort of semi-professional section of the of the Blazers media box. But please tell our listeners how we met. Okay, so it was opening night of the 2008-09 season. It was, I think, the fourth Blazers game I had ever attended in Portland. So I was still getting very, you know, uh, getting used to the new situation. The Sonics had just moved to Oklahoma City, and that's what was forcing me to start going down to Portland to attend NBA games in person. And uh, it, before the game, Martel Webster had signed a contract extension. I'll be honest, I was a weirdo at that time, too. I mean, I'm still wearing khakis to games. I'm, I'm moonlighting. I have a day job. I mean, it's just kind of for fun. But this guy sits down next to me, no idea who he is. And instead of introducing himself, he pulls up the website that I wrote for and starts reading what I had just written basically an hour before, causing me to be like, hey, man, why are you reading what I'm writing instead of just saying hello to me? <laughs> uh, it, is you probably have, have experienced many times since then. I'm terrible at introductions. That's true. Um, and I'm not great at them either. So anyway, these two antisocial basketball nerds who were too afraid to say hello went on to have a podcast now they are uh, fast forward 10 years they're having another podcast here in los angeles and you were just on tv i mean you, you're kind of big time you were on the jump today how'd that go i i thought it went pretty well but then i i haven't actually watched it back so uh we'll, we'll see how it looks from that standpoint but it was a lot of fun well you're gonna do great on this podcast because i have so much ammunition because you just put out your espn rpm uh, projections for win totals for next season and uh, of course there's about a million bones to pick everywhere and I'm not going to give you credit for any of the ones that look good I'm just going to come right at you with the ones that are crazy does that sound good but first before we do that I want to set up exactly how you do these projections and I want to use an analogy so in this analogy you're going to be me and your projection system is going to be my drone and just we're doing this for the sake of a casual listener named Andrew Sharp who's out there and he has a hard time sometimes with the analytics he doesn't totally get it I explained how a drone works to him uh, earlier this summer so uh, when you're putting together this system are you flying the drone are you starting the drone and the drones going on autopilot is the drone flying itself I mean exactly how influential are you in terms of making these projections Basically, how much can I blame you for how bad they are? Well, first I start with, I come up with a list of the teams that I secretly hate. Okay, okay, okay. And then I put an adjustment in for it. No. It's probably closer to the autopilot system. Because obviously, you know, it would be a stretch to say, oh, these are completely objective. They have nothing to do with anything. They just come out of the ether. Like, no, obviously there yeah. are assumptions that go into it. Like player playing time, right? That's the most subjective part of it. Yeah. Because that's the part that I'm specifically going through and predicting myself. I'll go through and take the roster, uh, included restricted free agents, uh, and then guys who have been reported to have been signed and haven't officially signed yet. There's a few of those. And I will take the different positions and lay out how many minutes there are in a season. And so the games played projections, those are based off how many games they missed in previous seasons. But the minutes per game, that's strictly my you know, best guess at what teams' rotations are going to look like based on that grid kind of and making sure that all the minutes align. So if there's a team that has three capable backup point guards, I mean, the minutes that you might assign to their starting point guard might be different than a team that has nobody 
as a backup point guard, for and, an example. Yeah, and I mean, for the most part, I will start with last season's minutes and go from there. So, you know, for guys who are starters and in our pretty consistent roles, it's just going to be running back last season. Uh, it's more, you know, teams that have made dramatic changes where it's a little more difficult to predict exactly how the rotation is going to play out. And, and you know, it does create an issue sometimes with teams that have injury risks. So the L.A. Clippers are probably someone who are, who's going to be on your list. You know, I my assumption based on the, the formula is that Gallinari will play 70 games. Blake Griffin will play 68. They might play 75. They might play 80. They might play 60. And all of that is going to affect how the Clippers ultimately do. But you kind of got to pick somewhere in between. What are the other things that wind up being uh, subjective when you're making this model? Anything else? So I, I don't know if I would necessarily say it's subjective, but let's say assumptions. So I've gone through, we're, we're starting with the multi-year version of RPM, uh, which is a better predictor going forward than just looking at 2016-17, which is what's actually on the website. And there's also a player aging curve based on what Jerry Engelman, who created RPM, has found to, to, to be player, how, they, how they've aged in the past. So when do guys fall off a cliff, right? I mean, like, you expect a guy who's 34 going into age 35 is probably going to fall more than a guy who's going from age 29 to age 30. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, it is the familiar curve where players peak around age 27, gradually decline for a little bit after that, and then steep decline as they get into their mid to late 30s. Uh, and then... The other aspect is based on past results, determining how much to regress those projections to the mean. Okay. And then the, the you other... just lost Andrew, FYI, when you said the word regress to the mean. So let's let's really dumb this down. I mean, basically, if a team shoots up twenty wins year over year and they're the huge breakout team, you're probably not expecting them to, if they bring back most of their same players, reach that same sort of height or peak that they did the previous season? Yeah, although that's only implicit in this because there there is no team element to the projections. It's only adding up the player projections in the RPM system. So what it means is if you're a guy who, you know, was a really elite player in terms of RPM last year, you know, odds are you probably got you got a few good bounces along the way that you might not get the next year. And then also some of it maybe you were put in a role that was really favorable and now your role might not be quite as favorable. So all of that players kind of get dragged back towards the middle, towards league average. Seems like guys like Harden and Westbrook would be really obvious examples of this, right? Like they put up like completely insane statistical seasons last year and we're spending all of last season. Wow, we've never seen this stat line since Oscar Robertson. We've never seen Harden's stat line since Oscar Robertson. And the odds that they're going to do that twice in a row are not great, even if they're prime players, even if they're playing huge minutes, even if their teams are still built around them. Exactly. Anytime you have enormous success, it's both a lot of skill and some luck. They, had, they both had great health last year, and that's, a, that's a huge part of it, right? I mean, there was never like a, a week where they were nursing stuff that would might limit them. Okay, enough with the technical stuff. So I think what it sounds like basically is you've designed the drone, you're pushing go on the drone, and the drone's going up in the air, and maybe it's taking a circulating route that it's familiar with, and it's capturing pictures, and it's coming back, and you're not really screwing with it once it's in the air. Yeah, I mean, I have a sense of where the drone is going to go. <laughs> like, I just know enough about what players' RPMs are and you know some of these other factors that cause teams to be better or worse uh, than they were last season that, you know, 
about 75% of the time, I can guess to what a team's record is going to be within a couple wins or so. There was one particular team I was trying to guess ahead of time what it was going to be, and I got it within like 0.1 wins, projected wins. But every once in a while, there's a team that's going to come up, and you're going to be like, hey, huh. That's weird. How did that come up? So let me ask you this. Has there ever been a situation in past years where something was so screwy that you had to adjust basically the, the formula or you had to adjust how you were weighting things or how you were regressing things or anything like that? Did you ever feel like it was broken and then you had to fix it or was it more just kind of gradual, subtle changes? So that happened with the Shaney projection system. I mean, it's more after the season. If so you... Shaney was the one that you used to do with basketball uh Prospectus, yeah, and now this is a new version that ESPN does, real plus minus, and it's not because of ESPN's choice. It was because yeah. of the fact that the RPM projections were outperforming. I was I was doing both of them for a period of time, and the RPM projections were doing a better job of predicting what teams were going to do than the Shaney projections were. Got you. So this is the best of the best, which is perfect because let's just get into me trashing it. So <laughs> this is your pristine system. You've spent years honing. You've chosen it over other systems. And you're telling me the Golden State Warriors are going to lose 20 games. You have them projected to go 62.1 wins, or basically 62 and 20. Uh, so I guess my first question is, do you watch basketball? <laughs> <laughs> I'm being sarcastic here, but that seems pretty low, KP, for their three-year track record, 67, 73, 67. You know this is the number everybody's going to latch on to. I'm sure you agree with me. They're huge off-season winners. They bring back virtually every important person yep. in their rotation. They've got only moderately important players who are aging. I mean, guys like Iguodala, West, um, John Livingston, Sean Livingston, maybe Zaza. I mean, these are not their core players who we expect to fall off a cliff. And they lost Kevin Durant for a big chunk of last season. You would expect if everything kind of weighs out the way they do their minutes, they take care of their guys' bodies. To me, this seems like a team where, I mean, shouldn't this be a 70-win type team next season, especially now that uh, KD's up to speed? I mean, how do you possibly justify 62-20? and 20? What am I not getting? I mean, if they're going to win 70 games, it'll be somewhat on accident because of the fact that they're obviously not trying to win 70 games. They're not, you know, like they did when they set the record. What if they come ago. back and try to win 70? Don't you think they should? No. Why not? Because I think that they have decided that the fact that they lost in the finals that year was connected with their attempt to win every game possible. Yeah, but I think I actually think the Cleveland, the city of Cleveland, has exploded since then. I think it's just now there's like a a big you know f you know smoke and the river's on fire again. I mean, I think uh, that so much has changed since then. Their dominance of their key teams. I mean, San Antonio to me potentially could be worse next year than than this past year. Houston, they've just completely owned consistently. All the other West teams, I don't see a major threat. And in the East, I think that there are odds on favorites to sweep whoever comes out of the East in the finals next year. Huh. I mean, this is an this is a hashtag August take for sure. But when I look at it, I, that's how I look. You know, I think they're looking at sixteen and one and not being like, oh wow, that was such a dominant run. We're so cool. I think they're thinking we really should have gone 16-0. and 0. Let's do it again next year. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the goal for them because that's what the thing that they haven't done. They've won 73. Okay. I mean, doing it again or winning 74, I don't think would mean as much to them as being the first to go 16 I guess my point is they could accidentally win 75. Really? They're really good. I mean, they're really, really good. They're really good. I mean, the regression of the mean factor is important here That's in why they're only projected to win 62. 
I, I was a little surprised to the extent that last year their projection was like 66, 67. Wasn't that almost a record? It was the most that you know any team had had been projected for in the time that I've been doing RPM projections, which I think I've done, I went have gone back and done through 2009, which was the 2008-09, which was the first year I did Shaney. So I have I have the playing time projections for all those seasons. So it was like so they were projected to win 66 or 67 last year, that which was the highest in nine years. That pretty much hit. I mean, they yes. won 67. Um, why the fallback from 67 to 62? I mean, is it just the age stuff that you're mentioning, or, or why I mean, else? I think that's probably the biggest factor. They're the second oldest team in the league in terms of the projected age of their rotation really? weighted by minutes played. Only Cleveland is older. Hmm. Yeah, you don't think of Golden State as being old because of the fact that their core, as you mentioned, is generally in or you know in their prime, not necessarily at peak, but in their prime. But the, ro- the role players tend to be older, and even you know the youngest guy... Patrick McCaw in their rotation last year, he may not play a whole lot more this year with the addition of Nick Young. Very interesting. So if you had to bet, though, you'd still take over on 62, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And so that's the key thing, because you're going to get a lot of crap. And I'm jokingly being the, you know, the idiot fan who yells at you. I'm sure you get this all day long. Uh, you know, 62, you must be stupid. But again, there's a difference between you and the system. You're not the system. I don't think anyone actually tweeted me about the Warriors yesterday. Seriously? Yeah. Well, you, maybe you don't have any readers. <laughs> no, no. Many. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Many, many other fans tweeted me. I'm just saying. Well, I guess Warriors fans are too concerned about whether they're yeah. 62 or 67. Like, what does it matter? It's tough. They're all in bubble baths and champagne, and you know they're they're having a good time this summer. Life's pretty good. They've got uh, bigger fish to fry than the August uh, projections. Okay, let's talk about one that I'm sure you did get a lot of angry um, responses to. That's the Toronto Raptors at 43.4. So you're saying they're slightly better than 500. This is a team that's kind of coming off its golden era as a franchise, three or four years of pretty uh, sustained success. I think when you look at their top-level moves, people would say, Oh, brought Kyle Lowry back for less than they expected. Brought Serge Ibaka back for maybe less than they expected, at least in terms of the years. Uh, but to do that, they really shed quite a bit of their rotation. Uh, why was RPM, I guess, so low on uh, those transactions? I mean, I'm assuming they're still expecting pretty good play from guys like Ibaka and Lowry. Um, well, Ibaka hasn't necessarily been that good of an RPM guy in okay. recent years. And you know the fact that Orlando was as unsuccessful as it was during his brief tenure there uh, did not help him. And then Patrick Patterson has been a high RPM guy because he's been part of the second unit that they've had with Corey Joseph, another guy who's gone but didn't project as well in RPM. Uh, and, and then Kyle Lowry coming in and playing alongside Joseph in those lineups. And those have really been the lineups that have caused Toronto's success. Their starting lineup has actually, you know, I think their most used starting lineup last year with Pascal Siakam at power forward, I think was slightly outscored. It was me or maybe marginally positive. It's really been about that second unit. And now you've like got... Like the Lowry plus the bench unit, yeah. right? Yeah. And now you've got key components of that second unit no longer there. Now, DeLon Wright projects pretty well in terms of RPM. He'll replace Corey Joseph, presumably, at backup point guard with you know Fred VanVleet maybe in the competition there. But it's really that Patterson absence that is a big one for them. And it's going to be a different rotation for them. I'm guessing Siakam will be the backup power forward. They don't, 
you know, and he played pretty well in summer league. I thought his energy. I mean, he wasn't there for a ton, but I thought he played pretty well when he was there. And I thought guys like Van Vliet. They had a couple guys, and even uh, Hurdle. Hurdle. Yeah. I mean, all those guys played pretty well in summer league for whatever that's worth. I mean, they should. They're all coming back, um, you know, as sort of vets in summer league. But um, I think that 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 youth movement was kind of driving some of these decisions, don't you think? Well, I think the luxury tax was driving yeah. most of these decisions. But yeah, the fact that you had young guys in tow made it easier, and. You know, the word last year in Toronto being uh, around them briefly for their first preseason game was that the expectation was, you know, they drafted Siakam thinking he would be their starting power forward this year. That, you know, whether it was Patterson still coming off the bench, if they had re-signed him or what, you know, how exactly that would have played out, that he would step into that role after a year of development. He obviously wasn't ready to do it as a rookie. If he is ready to do it as a sophomore, you know, they'll probably be kind of similar to how they have been in the regular season the last few years. I mean, this is one I would take the over on, and it's interesting. So I do still run the Shaney projections, although I, I don't publish them because it's not as accurate a predictor as the RPM. And in Shaney, I think Toronto might is either first or second in the East. Wow. So, so there's a wide gap. So the drones are battling. I mean, we have, two, we have <laughs> yes. two drones circling in different directions over the Raptors. This is great. It's just that the one drone is a little less reliable than the other. That's hilarious. Well, uh I think the the big takeaway when you look at this, you know, system saying the Raptors are only going to win 43 is it's the type of conclusion that most human analysts wouldn't reach. I think that the the natural tendency for us when we're looking at this, even people who are totally plugged in is like they're bringing back their most important players. They made a whole bunch of moves where, you know, Corey Joseph goes out, but CJ Miles comes in, you know, they lose Carroll, but he wasn't really giving everything. I think the natural tendency in those situations, call it lazy thinking, is just to say, oh, those minor moves are just going to wash out. It's not a big deal. They're probably going to be about the same team. And what the computer is telling you, I think, here is that those minor moves are not washing out, right? The Carroll one is also interesting because he was seen as basically dead salary that they dumped on the Brooklyn Nets, which is why they had to give up a first round pick to get rid of him. And in RPM, he's still rated as he projects as an above-average player. So that's a pretty wide discrepancy in terms of his value in particular. That's fascinating. So another great thing about your Raptors projection is that it inducted you into a club with me. Maybe you were already in the club, but we are now inducted in the same club, the FOH club. I hate swearing on this podcast because we have young listeners, but it's the bleep out of here club. DeMar DeRozan has directed an FOH at me over his number 46 ranking in last year's top 100, which, as I talked about with Rob Mahoney not too long ago, was completely deserved and 100% accurate. And now he has directed an FOH at you over the 43-win projection, which puts the Raptors potentially in the sixth seed uh, for next season. First of all, what's your response to... Uh, Canada's angstiest star player. <laughs> and uh, how do you feel about his role in this projection? I mean, shouldn't we be blaming him a little bit for this? Well, he's the angst- angstiest on sh- social media. I feel like Kyle Lowry, in, uh, outside the friendly confines of social media, may be a little angstier than he is. And I, I really don't know anything about... Uh, I was going to name a, a Blue Jays star, but now I've... Yeah. Jose Bautista, is he still there? Uh, I have no idea. Okay. Um who, who plays for the Toronto Maple Leafs? I, I don't know. You're asking the wrong guy. All I, I can do is slam DeRozan, and I'm asking you to slam DeRozan with me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, his RPM is not that great, and that is a factor in that. Because, you know, it is compared to that Lowry with plus bench unit that has been so good, the DeRozan plus bench unit that usually plays at the end of the first and third quarter has not been very good. Yeah, and as you mentioned, he's on the court when the starters have not been great either, and... 
Yeah, I don't necessarily blame him for that because they haven't had good floor space to get power forward the last couple of seasons with Siakam and then Luis Scola there. And I think that will be better with Serge Ibaka for a full season. Well, we do know who blamed him for that. Damari Carroll on his way out of town. <laughs> he sure did. He sure <laughs> Which did. I thought was pretty interesting. He's also potentially a candidate for a guy of a little bit of regression, right? I mean, in mm-hmm. terms of his scoring number last year, everybody remembers his incredible tear. I mean, Damar was, you know, all jokes aside, he was pretty killer in the first couple of months of last season. Uh, you know, can he do that again? I mean, he's right in his prime. Supposedly, he's trying to work on his three-point shot, all this other stuff. But uh, he was really, really lighting it up last year. Uh, even 85 or 90 percent of that produ- production this year, I think, would translate pretty substantially uh, in the win-loss column for them. I mean, they really needed him last year, especially when Lowry was out, to be sort of his best self, right? Yeah, and then also Lowry, can he continue to play at this level at his age, past his peak level of performance? You know, and, they, and with his injury history. Right. Which, that, that does give them some upside. If Kyle Lowry stays healthy for 80 games, then, you know, maybe that's... Another factor is I cut Lowry's minutes a little bit per game in the projection be under the assumption that they're going to try to manage his minutes more during the regular season. They better. I mean, I think the only way they don't is if Dwayne somehow finds himself, like, coaching for his job, you know, right. and then they've got bigger problems if that happens. Okay, this isn't necessarily a specific team projection, uh, but... The thing that jumps out to me, uh, besides the Warriors, besides the Raptors, is uh, fairly obvious. It's that you've got the eighth seed cut off at 35 wins with the Pistons. And you've got, in the in the West, you've got the eighth seed cut off uh, with the Jazz at 44.7 wins. That's a big, you know, that's a, basically a 10-win difference uh, between the conferences. Uh, and in the East, I mean, that is such a low bar. How, what do you attribute that low bar to? Was it just... Or the East general managers had a terrible offseason, or maybe, and maybe more accurately, the owners. But yeah, so elaborate on that. I mean, it really was a pretty slanted. It's like on this show, uh, Open Floor, we call the West the show, like sort of the baseball, and in the East, we call AAA. And we probably haven't talked enough about the fact that the gap really got wider this summer, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's which is not what you'd expect. Usually, you know, if the dominant conference is going to have, a, because of that same regression to the mean, they're going to have a difficult time maintaining or increasing that advantage. The other conference is going to have better draft picks, more cap room, things like that. And this year, for whatever reason, all the stars went to the West. So you have, and, and in trades that were not very favorable for the East teams, uh, Jimmy Butler going from Chicago to Minnesota, Paul George going from Indiana to Oklahoma City would probably be the two most notable examples of that. And that's taking two teams that were at the bottom of the East playoff tier a year ago and putting them almost certainly in the lottery. Same with, it wasn't a trade, but Atlanta losing Paul Millsap. Millsap for nothing was tough. So those are all, you know, Minnesota and Oklahoma City of those teams was in the playoffs last year. You're taking two non-playoff teams in the West, Minnesota and Denver, and probably turning them into playoff teams, or at least among the top 16 teams in the NBA. And you're taking two of the teams that were playoff teams, three of the teams that were playoff teams in the East, and putting them in the lottery. And gutting them. be a big factor. I mean, really gutting them. Yeah, I mean, Atlanta and Chicago could be two of the bottom five teams in the league. I, I would expect that. So the one thing I will say is you should not look at these projections and say, oh, the eighth seed in the East is going to have 35 wins. That's not a good way to use these projections. Because what we know is there's a number of teams in a, in a close you know, range there you know, Philadelphia's at 33, Detroit's at 35. I think someone else is like at 30, a couple of teams are at 32, New York and Orlando, right? One of those teams is going to vastly exceed expectations 
and even though in this case that still might only mean winning 38 games, that's still going to be enough to mean that the eighth seed is not that far below 500. We really hope. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I would be, I would go very strongly on that on that front. The other aspect that comes into play is, of course, you know, if you're that team that's currently sitting there at 37 on pace for 37 wins, but that's going to be good enough to make the playoffs in the East, you're maybe going to go out and make a midseason move and improve that one. You're going to tool up because, hey, might as well. We can get some playoff revenue and, and get some positive momentum and, and stuff like that. Right. And we the other factor, I think I don't have a factor for. The other, I should note, by the way, I, I should have probably noted this off the top. There isn't any adjustment for schedule at this point because there is no schedule. So those East teams will add probably about a win on average, and the West teams will probably lose about a win on average. So that'll bring those two eight seeds a little closer to each other, like an eight-win gap in terms of the quality of those teams. But it, it still will be, and, and the West was no surprise to me. I mean, this is what I expected is, you know, 10 teams, 500 or better. Uh, and, you know, a couple of those teams are going to be very disappointed when they miss the playoffs. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned the thing about no adjustment for schedule because when I was looking at the Warriors projection, I didn't know maybe you gave them like all of March off to go on vacation or something like that. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know how you got the 62 wins for the Warriors. That'd probably have to be February based on the number of games. Okay, I, I just realized I really buried the lead here and I think that people, knowledgeable basketball fans who look at your projections are going to see Minnesota Timberwolves at 50.1, the number four seed in the West. Just for context sake, you've got them... Uh, or RPM's got them projected above Oklahoma City, above uh, the Clippers, projected to win more games than any team in the Eastern Conference, uh, including Boston at 49, Cleveland at 49. I'm guessing this was the oh wow when you were running this, or did you really, did you personally anticipate such a huge jump? Yeah, I mean, I expect, I thought they'd be behind Oklahoma City. I have Oklahoma City ahead of them in my personal power rankings, but no, I, I thought that they would probably come out as the fifth best team in the West. Explain that. I mean, that seems huge. I mean, obviously, I love Jimmy uh, Butler just about as much as anybody in terms of his all-around package. We can obviously expect more from Towns because he's jumping from year two to year three. I think that's the most underrated story about Minnesota is all these other moving parts, whether it's Teague coming in, uh, you know, the Taj Gibson and, and Tib Love Affair coming back, or, you know, Jimmy, this blockbuster trade. Towns' improvement from year two to year three seems like that's a major driver and probably the determining factor of how good they are as a team next season. But 50 wins from low 30s is a gigantic jump. Uh, why did you personally project that? Well, I think number one, you know, if you start out with what their point differential was last season, it was more like that of a 37 or 38 win team as opposed to a team in the low 30s. It actually was very similar to their 37 win projection in RPM last year, which I thought at the time was going to be a little low because I thought Tom Thibodeau would make more difference at the defensive end. There's no coaching adjustment here either. Uh, it turned out that, in fact, their defense was Tom Thibodeau-proof. Or, <laughs> I don't know if that's the right way to say that. but The youth won out over the experience of the coaching staff. Yes, that is, that is a good way to put it. So if you start from that standpoint, it's no longer as big of a jump. Then if you look at the youth of the roster, you know, I think if let's say they didn't make the Jimmy Butler trade, let's say they didn't add Jeff Teague, I think their projection would have been somewhere 41 to 44 in that range. You know, probably put them in that back back end of the uh, playoff mix. So is compared so you know, the Jimmy Butler addition only needs to get them another, you know, 
six to nine wins then if you're starting from that as opposed to starting from the actual number of games they won last year. And the other aspect of it is, you know, it's not Jimmy Butler coming in and replacing good players. Even Oklahoma City deals with this <laughs> with Paul George. Chris Dunn was terrible last season. Yeah. He had the lowest true shooting percentage of any player in the league who played at least 1,000 minutes. And Zach Levine, you know, they basically didn't miss him at all. Plugging in Brandon Rush. Journeyman Brandon Rush, who is still unsigned as we recorded this podcast, was starting for them last year. That's like, it's not Jimmy Butler versus an average starter. It's Jimmy Butler versus one of the worst starters in the NBA. Yeah, or like having a fan contest and saying, okay, you get to play Smell Forward for tonight. That's <laughs> basically where they were at. No, I think what you're hitting on here is a fascinating uh, reason why people should look at projections. And even if you're not a stat nerd, even if you're a casual fan like Sharp, you will find it valuable because when you start to think, okay, they're making a jump from 31 wins last year to 50, that seems gigantic. But that, as you're saying, that jump can be explained by last year's underperformance relative to expectations or even their point differential. Uh, the fact that they did so poorly in late game scenarios where they really probably blew a bunch of games they should have won. And uh, that helps bridge the gap, right? So if they're not really a 31-win team, you know, if we think of them more like a 36, 37-win team, it seems more feasible for them to get to 50. I'm still not sure they're going to get to 50. The other thing that benefits them in this projection, I think, is the fact that they still haven't filled out the roster. They've got guys, they're going to add guys on the back end, and those guys will get some playing time, and they'll be worse than some of the players who are currently projected to play those minutes. I mean, I didn't necessarily like completely overburden the starters, but... You know, some of the backups probably have more minutes now than they will when they have a full 15-player roster. So I think that'll probably be enough to ultimately lift Oklahoma City ahead of them in the final projections in the fall. Hey guys, what's up? It's me again, back to talk to you about Barbasol. The biggest thing to happen to Barbasol since shaving cream is also the only thing to happen to Barbasol since shaving cream. Introducing new Barbasol razors. The brand America trusts for a close, comfortable shave now has premium disposable razors. Barbasol's close shave technology on every razor means you get an advanced pivoting head and ultra-thin open flow blades. The Ultra 6 Plus razor also features a 7th blade specifically designed to refine and style tricky areas like under the nose, your sideburns, and beard. Visit Barbasol.com and get a $2 savings coupon and see for yourself why Barbasol razors are the number one new disposable razors on the market. You're looking good, America. You're shaving with Barbasol. So you have Houston as the second best team in the league, trailing only Golden State, winning 55 games. The more that I've looked at that Chris Paul trade, uh, the funnier it is that the only team that got anything back for their superstar happened to be in the Western Conference, which only reinforces the, the gap between the conferences. And to be the one that had it was a free agent. I know, I know. It's it's uh, it's rough. But the the more I like their uh, their chances, you know, I think Chris Paul is just consistently one with very little help behind him. Uh, James Harden, when you look at their offense, has consistently put up really strong offensive numbers without that much help until D'Antonio, uh, D'Antonio arrives last season and installs a system that can kind of carry them in, in the minutes that he's not in there. You put them together, you stagger their minutes. That should be really steady and super efficient. I think the time they play apart could be as important as the time they're playing together in terms of their regular season win total. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, I think you did a good job of illustrating that in your piece uh, earlier this week about the Rockets, 
how much both of, both of them and the Clippers have suffered whenever their star point guard is on the court, off the court. And now you're not going to have those situations, uh, barring injury, where you're playing without either one of those guys. Yeah, it just bothers me when people fixate on, oh, they're going to fight over the ball, they're going to fight over the ball. Well, guess what? They're actually going to be on the bench happy to watch the other one run things because it doesn't. It means that Austin Rivers and Pablo Prigioni and you know maybe Jeremy Lin or some of these other guys who have been in big roles for either the Rockets or the Clippers over these past few years aren't pissing away leads, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, I mean, last year Houston even had good talent. They had Patrick Beverly, Eric Gordon, and eventually Lou Williams to cover those minutes, but they still struggled when Harden was on the bench. I mean, it's just hard to replace a superstar. So, I mean, I do think there's some risk for them in terms of those guys being happy with the amount that they're not only handling the ball, but really just making decisions for the offense. But barring that, I think this is going to be a really good team. I mean, the, the other interesting thing about this projection in particular is how, how well Houston is projected defensively. Yeah. So you had Paul, who had, you know, I think the best defensive RPM of any point guard last year. He did. And then also P.J. Tucker, Luke Bamute, two really good combo forward defenders. And step, they also get rid of, you know, Beverly was a pretty good point guard defender in his own right. So that, that upgrade isn't necessarily very large, but the upgrade from Lou Williams to the guys who are playing those backup <laughs> anyway. minutes uh, in Houston now are, is a pretty significant one. For sure. So I guess here's the question I should ask you about Houston. You have them at 55. Sorry, RPM has them at 55. San Antonio... Uh, RPM has at 52.6, so about 53 wins. No other team above uh, Minnesota at 50.1. Do you feel like Houston is pretty clearly the biggest threat to Golden State next season uh, in terms of record, but I guess also matchup-wise too, because you're mentioning Tucker and Mute, and I mean you can make cases for some of these other teams in terms of like San Antonio trying to just you know monkey wrench them in terms of style, or Oklahoma City having some pretty good interchangeable lineups. Uh, or Cleveland having the LeBron factor and whoever you surround him with, you know, that's going to be a tough out in a series. Um, but I think especially if Cleveland loses Kyrie, to me, Houston is now kind of in that lead challenger spot. I, I think so too. And I mean, one of the things you have to think about is Daryl Morey has talked a lot about this. In a world where the Warriors are as dominant as they are, this actually sounds like the start of a movie trailer. In a world where the Warriors are as dominant as they are, they had to start taking risks. Yeah. Because the only way, you're not going to beat them by putting a team that is definitely going to win 55 games. For sure. You have to have a team that has a chance of being like a 60-win team, and then maybe it's got a chance of being the downside of being like a 50-win team if everybody starts fighting. And you got to be able to be okay with that because that's the only way you're ever going to get on the Warriors' level, not by being that pretty good but not great team, which is what San Antonio seems to have locked into. Yeah. Unless Rudy Gay like comes back better than he was before he ruptured his Achilles. I, I'm just not saying it, man. Don't worry. San Antonio is playing the long game, okay? They're going to get rid of LaMarcus next summer. They're going to get rid of Rudy Gay next summer. They're going to sign LeBron. They're going to sign Chris away from Houston. They're going to bring Wade and Melo in on discounted yeah, deals. How is Powell's $16 million guaranteed <laughs> next year fit into this? They're going to dump him on Atlanta, okay? That's <laughs> that's their... Like Budnoser's already agreed to take him on. That's their, uh, their trademark move is whenever they get stuck with a bad contract, send him over there. Um... <laughs> Just let me dream, okay? I think San Antonio's playing the long game, and uh, but the pow thing was really bad, wasn't it? It was really bad. <laughs> that might have been my least favorite move of the entire summer. I mean, there were some other worse moves, like the Butler trade was terrible for Chicago, but the pow one was just inexplicable. Okay, let's get 
serious again here. West playoff bubble. It's really tight. I mean, basically between 43 wins and 50 wins, you've got the Thunder in the fifth seed, the Clippers in the sixth seed, the Nuggets in the seventh, the Jazz in the eighth, the Pelicans nine, the Blazers 10, and then there's a drop off and uh, teams like Dallas and Memphis that you know have historically been noisemakers, maybe not last season for Dallas, but in recent years, there's a pretty big gap once you once you pass the Blazers at 10th. Um, what were your big takeaways from that grouping? I mean, I think, you know, just kind of eyeballing this, Denver made a big jump. I'd like to know why that happened. And then Utah is still in the playoff picture despite losing Hayward, and I'm curious why that is. I mean, Denver didn't surprise me at all in terms of this was a team that was right on the cusp of the playoffs last year, and Paul Millsap, not only one of the better players to change teams, but also just an ideal fit for what they needed alongside Nikola Jokic. So, you know, I think if they can even get to competent defensively, they don't, they don't have to be average, they don't have to be good. If they can just get to not terrible defensively, they're going to be great on offense, and they're going to win a lot of games. So that, that one, like I said, that was about where I had them mentally... Um, the Clippers were more of a surprise to me. I, I think speaking to their depth, uh, now that they added you know th- multiple guys, Lou Williams, Beverly, Sam Decker, Montrez Harrell, all in that Chris Paul trade, that really changed. The, their starting lineup is not going to be as good in years past as in years past, and there's still significant injury upside or downside with Gallo and Blake Griffin, but they are not going to get just destroyed every time they go to their bench which will be a nice change of pace it feels like it's going to put a lot of pressure on on doc rivers and there was news this week that he's basically now just coach of the clippers no longer going to be expected to be sort of the lead uh decision maker in the front office and to me that's a pretty clear hedge right it's sort of like we're nudging you we're getting you prepared to go out the door if this doesn't go well you better perform you know you better keep us in the playoff picture don't be a lottery team next year when I look at the Clippers' 48.9 wins bar, it seems really high not having Chris. I mean, they've been so reliant upon Chris. It really, like you're saying, it it forces you to completely rethink everything that we've known about the Clippers. They're not this top-heavy team where Chris carries them, and if Blake goes out, he'll still be able to gut out a really good winning percentage. Right. They're now this almost like Nuggets-like team from right. you know five years ago where they're playing 10 guys and they're beating you because... They don't really have the holes. I'm worried that they're going to have the holes, though. I'm worried that the injury, you know, the injury factor for, I mean, Gallo already got hurt this summer. I mean, what a ominous tone that sets for their season. Uh, but then, you know, Griffin potentially not being ready for opening night. That's some buzz that people have kind of had out there. 48.9 just seems like such a high bar for a team that doesn't have Chris that's going to be in a transition year. Uh do you feel over or under on them? Yeah, I would take the under on them for all the reasons you laid out. Although the interesting thing is Shaney actually has them higher than RPM. <laughs> Shaney just has everybody winning 75 games. <laughs> that's, that's not true. In Utah, I think they are much, Shaney is much lower on, which is no surprise because Utah went up and lo- out and loaded up on defensive guys and has no scoring whatsoever without Gordon Hayward now. It's going to be you know Rodney Hood grading more offense, maybe Donovan Mitchell doing it as a rookie. Uh, uh, Ricky Rubio playing with the ball in his hands but Rubio, Cephalosha even Epe Udo based on his translated EuroLeague stats and then going back to his days in the NBA all guys who have been kind of RPM darlings so it wasn't a surprise to me at all to see them you know, where they are 
so I think the other thing we should note here is, like, even though the projections say number eight Utah Jazz, nine New Orleans, I believe, and then ten Portland, like, that's an arbitrary distinction, eighth versus ninth. That doesn't mean that RPM thinks, oh, this team will make the playoffs and that team will miss it. Like, yeah. some percentage of the time, the Pelicans are going to play better. Some percentage of the time, the Blazers are going to play better. Some and they're going to make the playoffs. All three of those teams are very much in the mix, but yeah. none of them are certain to make the playoffs. And they're all projected to basically win the same game. So you're talking coin flips. I mean, you're talking one star gets you know injured for two weeks. I mean, basically the projection is you yep. know one way or the other. And so um, I'm curious though, why is New Orleans in that mix? You know, and this is another one where the computer and the quote unquote lazy analyst, or just the snap take reaction about New Orleans' summer. I mean, I look at the Pelican summer, and it seems like pretty much a disaster, right? I mean, they pay Holiday way over what the other point guards were getting because they had to. They backed themselves into a corner. They bring in Rondo, probably my least favorite player in the entire NBA. They're trying to make it work with Cousins and Anthony Davis, and they humorously compared themselves to Jokic and Nurkic in Denver, which basically was a disaster. So it doesn't (laughs) seem like they really have a clear idea of what they're trying to do. That was so good. They've got a coach on the hot seat. They've got a GM who definitely should have been on the hot seat for the last three years. No, still is. Um, and this could get completely blown up midseason to me. You know, if the Cousins thing's not yeah. working, how are they possibly in this bubble conversation so solidly? I and mean, why are they projected at 44 wins when a team like Memphis, which has proven it year in, year out, is down there at like 34.6? I mean, I guess the analyst in me would say Memphis is definitely going to be, there's like an 80% chance Memphis has a better record next season than New Orleans. That's just my snap take. Again, hashtag August take. And yet the the RPM model is saying basically the opposite. I mean, Memphis is interesting because they're sort of the anti-Minnesota. They've had this long track record of winning close games, which any any an RPM system that's you're trying to project point differential instead of wins is going to say that ability to translate your point differential into wins is not something that goes from can, recurs from season to season it's just essentially totally ran so eventually money mike and money mark might not be money yes uh the grizzlies are a bit of a historical outlier in this regard in terms of how long they've been successful in close games the Timberwolves are a historical outlier on the other end of the spectrum where they've basically been bad in close games ever since kg left but just because there is an outlier, I don't think disproves the theory. Mm-hmm. Like, essentially, if you flip a coin 10 times every once in a while, you are going to get 10 heads if you flip it 10 times enough times. And I think that it's known as the wider problem because, uh, you know, someone had to survive all the shootouts in the West. It didn't necessarily <laughs> make them better at shootouts. Like, someone inevitably was... So that's kind of the theory. I don't know that I 100% believe the, the full version of that. But that's part of why Memphis is down there, along with the fact that Ben Nacklemore, you know, their their biggest offseason addition, has rated really poorly in Sacramento. Is for New Orleans, we've sort of talked around this, there's not any accounting for fit in RPM. So the fact that you've got all these non-shooters in their starting lineup, assuming Rondo starts at point guard with Holiday, Solomon Hill, Cousins, and Davis. That sounds terrible on paper. It does. You're just basically adding up those individual players' RPMs. And their RPMs is a summation of, you know, in Davis' case, when he plays the power forward, when he plays center. In Holiday's case, almost always when he plays point guard, because he's barely ever played shooting guard in the past three years. And even Solomon Hill, when he plays small forward, is supposed to play in power forward. So 
you know, I think that's a case where RPM probably is missing something that the subjective analysis can capture. But it could also be telling us, hey, they got more talent than we're giving them credit for. Uh, because if, you're, if your first reaction is, oh, okay, this is like a 35 team, 35 win team worth of talent, and the RPM adds up and says it's 44, it could say, hey, let's take a second look at some of these guys who have bad reputations and really dig into whether, okay, could this actually be the year where they put it together? Yeah, and I do think the other thing that happened is last year, the Pelicans played so really so poorly with both Cousins and Davis on the court right after the trade, and that's when people were paying most attention to them. And they kind of tuned out after a couple of weeks when it became clear they weren't going to make the playoffs. For sure. And then all of a sudden, that starting lineup with Cousins and Davis, it started to be okay. Yeah. Not great, but okay. And now they've got a full training camp to try to work things out. I think they will have better chemistry and better fit than they had last year. Most important training camp in NBA history. I've heard so much about this vaunted Pelicans training camp. <laughs> Alvin Gentry, whatever, wherever you're going to take the guys this year, this is going to be very important. Every hour counts of this training camp. Another team that's interesting in that regard is Portland. Yeah. Because you're projecting Yusuf Nurkic off, off the last three years, which includes this time in Denver when he was coming off an injury two years ago. He and left at halftime of a game. <laughs> and then last year when he was... Uh, playing alongside Jokic in those lineups that were not, in fact, very effective, and then also was was highly unmotivated when he was coming off the bench behind Jokic. How polite of you! So yes, if you think that what Jokic, what Nurkic did in the two months after the trade deadline and after going to Portland last year is representative of who he truly is as a player, then Portland will be better than their projection. Yeah, and that's fascinating because he doesn't even have to be as good as he was during that stretch. He's maybe even 80% of that, given right. how bad he was previously, right. right? And so the computer is trying to smooth all of that out and say, look, he had this long track record of kind of meh and this one burst of hooray. Blazers fans are going to be latching onto the hooray. And this could be a situation where they're right, where uh, his fit in Portland was substantially better than his fit anywhere else. And uh, if their baseline is sort of at 44 and you're saying Nurkic is going to outperform what the model expects, that should be a playoff team. That's Yeah, they've got a much better chance, I think, than that suggests. As long as he's healthy, too, which is a question mark. And, and nobody, no system and no person can know that. Uh, my last one for you in the West, before we briefly get over to the dumpster fire AAA, uh, is actually the Kings. You've got the Kings at 27.4 wins, lowest uh, in the Western Conference. Again, I said you, but I meant the RPM system. Uh <laughs> I like this because I've heard a little bit too much optimism about the Kings. I feel like there's people who are saying, oh, this could be a team that makes some noise. They brought in these vets, you know, George Hill and, and Vince Carter and Zebo, and people are kind of getting excited. When I look at their roster, you know, Buddy Heald, he's, he's 34 now. He might be able to turn the corner. Um, they got a lot of other. <laughs> they got a lot of other young pieces. <laughs> Took me a second to process. No, that. I know. I, he's he's kind of a whipping boy on this podcast. I apologize, but they have a lot of young players who are going to have to play a lot of minutes, who I expect to be priorities, and they have motivation to keep their pick right. That to me sounds like a team that is going to lose a lot of games, regardless of these veteran additions, which you could argue aren't major additions in terms of trying to help you win games right now for next season. I, I agree they should probably be the worst team in the West next year, and the system pegs them at 27, which is substantially worse than everybody else in the conference. Why is that, and do you agree? Are you more optimistic on the Kings uh, than the system? I might put Phoenix below them. 
I think Phoenix is probably still going to be pretty bad next That's year. really good that they locked up McDonough. I mean, you don't want that guy to get away when he's had this unbelievably great track record year after year, and, and now he's in contention for being worse than Sacramento. you got to get that guy signed in. You know, one of the great traditions of the wing cast was me kind of like <laughs> holding my hand and shaking my head and, <laughs> holding my head and shaking my head. Uh, and it's nice to be able to do that in person as opposed to just over the telephone. I've still got it, KP. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, like, not only still got it, hot, that fastball is faster than ever. Um, I, I, I would say that George Hill, I think, is a significant addition in terms of helping the Kings win games next year. Vince Carter, at his age, you don't know what you're going to get year to year. Zebo was probably not as effective as people thought he was last year in that reserve role for Memphis. So, yeah, I, I agree that those are guys are not going to move the needle, proverbially speaking. I, I think, you know, it, it, with Sacramento, something that worked for their advantage this summer was how terrible their off-seasons have been previously. <laughs> not like, as bad as before. That's a good track. That's actually a good slogan. Like, we even saw that last summer. Like, everyone gave them, oh, they only gave Aaron Flalo and Anthony Tolliver, like, $4 million combined guaranteed in year two. Like, hey... They're holding the line in these signings. And then it turns out they cut both those guys, yeah. and they paid them $4 million in this season to do nothing. The, the soft bigotry of pathetic expectations. That's, <laughs> that's basically basically what I'm saying here. So just because of the fact that they didn't do anything to like completely ruin the future of the franchise this summer, and they did get a bunch of draft picks. They've got now six guys on six first-round picks from the last two years, which is an impressive group of young talent. Uh, those guys aren't necessarily going to help you win very much right now either. But they're moving in the right direction. I think people are giving them maybe a little bit too much credit. Yeah, I just look at the most important priority for that organization. To me, it's completely empower De'Aaron Fox, give him the ball, let him make mistakes. George Hill is sort of like his driver's ed instructor. You know, like he's ready to step in and slam on the brakes when things get completely out of control. But otherwise, you know, De'Aaron, do your thing. And if that's the case, we know teenage point guards, the guys who need to fill out and, you know, are going to have to work on their feel and playmaking ability uh, and are getting by on a lot of athleticism are not going to look great in year one. That's just how it is. And they're not going to win very many games in year one. And uh, I guess maybe I'm arguing with an imaginary opponent at this point, but, but <laughs> I just think... person who says that Sacramento's going to win 40 games? No, I think there are some people who are a little bit higher on Sacramento, I, yeah. you know, and, and I just don't really see it. Okay. Wait, wait, have, have I ever told you that I passed both my, like, driver's ed test and my actual driver's test with precisely an 80, which is the lowest you can get in pass? <laughs> I didn't check my blind spot, actually, when I was turning across a bike lane, and that docked me significantly on my driver's <laughs> test, but I did pass in my first shot. Wait, seriously? There was a bike lane involved? There was a That's bike so lane. so Portland. I love it. Yeah, no, it I was... I love it. And it was like a tisk-tisk moment, too. The guy was like, ah, well, and then... Thankfully, I was able to parallel park. I, I've mentioned on this podcast before, I'm terrible at parking, and I'm actually afraid of parallel parking in many situations. Somehow, I passed out part of the driver's test. No idea how. Did they have anything about uh, avoiding people who are running in front of your car in Las Vegas parking lots? No, we can tell that story, too. So why did you try to... I don't know if this was a suicide attempt. I'm not sure if I'd go that far. But a few years ago in Summer League... You famously put your life on the line. So I, I forget exactly what happened. And you lost your cell phone. I mean, exactly what happened? I did lose my cell phone in the backseat of a cab. And miraculously, it was not just stolen by the taxi driver and uh, and cracked for use by someone else. And it was at the like dispatch. And so you graciously volunteered to go drive me to go get it, as you had a car and I did not. 
And the problem was, without a cell phone, we could not communicate about the pickup. And I was standing in a different spot outside my uh, casino hotel than you were expecting. Yeah, the other problem was you were wearing an invisibility cloak and constantly changing your location from this entry to this entry to this entry. So I'm in a uh, panic trying to find you, trying to pick you up with no ability to communicate with you. Yeah, and you were like calling my room number and I'm, like, I'm not up there, so I couldn't <laughs> do anything about it. Uh, and eventually, I finally see you as you start to peel out to go wherever you were going to go at that point, angrily, you know, driving off because of the fact that you had been sitting there for 15 minutes waiting for me. So my only way to to uh, track you down is to come sprinting towards you, probably waving my hands, I imagine. Yeah, so my version of this story is I go into the casino and I ask the security guard, have you seen an ESPN NBA insider? And they're like, well, what does he look like? And well, they, like, they hadn't seen, it, seen one at that point. I'm still a basketball perspective. Okay, well, fact check the side. Have you seen a basketball statistician? And I was like, what does he look like? Well, medium height, medium build, white, probably wearing khaki shorts. And then you look around Las Vegas and that describes about, <laughs> you know, 87% of the people there. So like, no, sir, we haven't seen that. Okay, great. So then I'm, it's like 115 degrees as, as always in Las Vegas. And like you said, my stress level was through the roof. I'm trying to do a favor for a guy who just can't take the favor at this point. Where's his cell phone? Where is he? Can't find him. So I do peel out in the parking lot. I'm going, what, 20, 25? I mean, too fast for a parking lot. When Kevin jumps in front of a moving vehicle, waving his arms, and how fast did I stop? I mean, it was, it, there was peeled rubber. There was the sound effect from the movie. I mean, you know, the thing is, I really can't even remember this experience anymore. Maybe I've, it was traumatic <laughs> enough that I blocked it from my memory. I remember like driving around going to the, the taxi dispatch. I, like we went on a similar road last year during this summer during summer league and I was like, hey, I remember this. Yeah, I remember it because I had to Google uh, involuntary vehicular homicide <laughs> to just see how close I was to like significant jail time. Thankfully, it didn't, uh, it didn't happen. Anyway, I would, let's... I would have never testified against you if I survived. <laughs> yeah, you weren't going to survive. That's the thing. I mean, you, it was a life-threatening moment for you. Okay. Eastern Conference, and we're going to do just a few of these because we've run along on the West. But look, that's all anybody cares about. It's the show. Um, can you tell me offhand what a Kyrie trade impact, how much would that impact just ballpark it, Cleveland's projection? Like with Kyrie, you have got them at, or the, the system RPM has them at number two, 49 wins, very close neck and neck with Boston. If they trade Kyrie for one of these packages, like let's say Eric Bledsoe and you know whoever else, or you know one of these other packages where they're taking a downgrade a point guard, how much does Kyrie impact this? Well, if you go by RPM, they're not necessarily making much of a downgrade at point guard nice. because of the fact that Kyrie's defensive RPM has been so poor. Nice. And I think that would hurt them during the playoffs because of the fact that you know Kyrie has shown the ability to improve his defense during the playoffs and. His shot creation has tended to be more valuable then, but in the regular season, I don't think it would impact their projection much if it was that kind of a package. So this is one of those situations actually where like the knocks on a guy may be consistency night to night, his limited overall statistical impact, poor defensive play, actually show through and line up pretty well. Like yep. like the the eye test or what people knock Kyrie for match with what the computer is knocking him for it's still more of the hater eye test than the uh than like the average eye test but yes okay gotcha one uh that jumped out to me you have or the system has milwaukee at 46.9 right neck and neck with washington so washington's three 
Milwaukee's four, and then there's a, a pretty good cut towards the rest of the playoff teams. I'm really high on Milwaukee next season. Uh, I've actually used that Washington comp for them because I, I just phrase it like, who's got more help, John Wall or Giannis? Are we sure that John Wall has got significantly more help? I mean, I think there's a strong argument, full season of Middleton, fairly comparable to a full season of Beal. Maybe not exactly, but close. Closer than I think a lot of you know casual fans might say. Um, fit issues, I mean, at least Washington's worked through some of these things and, and maybe Milwaukee still needs to. I just don't think there's that much of a difference. And if I had to choose one guy for next season, I would choose Giannis over Wall based on the progress he made last year and the progress we expect at this point of his career age-wise. Are you uh, over or under on Milwaukee at 46.9? And do you see them as being this team that can kind of leap up maybe to the top three of the East or not? I might be a bit under on Milwaukee. I was kind of a, a skeptic on the Bucks hype that people like you were driving until this projection came out. And um, I mean, you know, if this completely unbiased, in this case, projection agrees with the hype, then may as well mostly go along with it. But it's a big jump. I mean, to get to 47 uh, without doing anything this summer, right? I mean, what's driving Milwaukee, like the optimism? Is it just Giannis related? Like, oh my God, this guy's off the charts. We uh, love him. Or No, I mean, because of the fact that I think there is a little bit of regression in the mean for him after he developed so quickly last year. I think a full season of Middleton is a big part of it. He's always played well in, in RPM. And, you know, I... Jabari's absence for the first part of the season actually doesn't hurt them that terribly in terms of RPM. Is there shades of Zach Levine there? It's, it's not nearly that extreme, but yes. Where like he goes down and it really hurts your psyche, but it doesn't necessarily hurt the immediate on-court uh, impact, you know? Right. It's like it's much worse in the headlines than it actually is on the court. And in terms of points per game. Yeah. Cool. So let's uh, look at a couple of these bad teams. So you said there could be a, somebody jumps up. You've got Philly outside the playoffs at 33, Orlando at 32, Indiana at 32, New York at 32. One of those teams has to, buck, uh, to bust through. I can hear the people, especially Spike and Mike in Philadelphia, screaming that the Sixers have no business to be in this group. How does the RPM system view Embiid's health just systematically like what is it doing with Embiid how many games is he going to play and then if you had to guess one of those teams to jump through I think most people would guess Philadelphia would you guess Philadelphia or would you take the field either Orlando Indiana uh, or New York I would probably take Philadelphia over the field okay of those teams uh, Embiid is projected for 50 games which is the minimum you can get projected for okay <laughs> and 25 minutes a game so uh I, I don't want to do that math in my head, but I think it's like 1,250 minutes. He might get a back-to-back in this year. That'd that's, be big. That's possible. I, I was surprised. I expected the Sixers to come out closer to 40 wins. And Shane didn't have them that high either. I mean, part of it is that, you know, Fulton Simmons, even though they're very good for rookies, that's a very low bar if you look at the production of rookies in recent seasons. It's been ugly, especially one-and-done guys. Yeah. I mean, and, and Simmons is not a one-and-done guy. I mean... He's a one-and-done and then sat one, <laughs> whatever you want to call that. But, I mean, he's coming in with zero games played. I mean, their three best players look great. They sound great long-term. That's a big three you'd love to have. But they've combined to play, what, 31 games? That's rough. And then Redick has historically never rated well in terms of defensive RPM. I think he's probably a little underrated by defensive RPM. He is a very good team defender. So I think he'll probably help a little more than it shows up on paper. 
Uh, the fact that Jared Bayless is projected to play any minutes at all kind of hurts the Sixers, honestly. They didn't really... That contract is the one that uh, I think Brian Colangelo... The, the, the one thing that Brian Colangelo has done that Sam Hickey definitely would have avoided. So... It sounds to me like you think maybe Philadelphia is just a little too hyped. Like, could this be a situation where this, the RPM system is telling us, look, everyone's excited about the 2018 Sixers compared to what they were two years ago or three years ago when it got really dark, but there's still not that much there. I still would predict them for like 38 wins if I were doing my subjective call on them. But yeah, I mean, I think people are getting a, it is a little too much too soon. Okay, great. Uh, last question for you here, the very bottom of the barrel. You've got Brooklyn, not last. Yeah. The system's got Brooklyn at 29.5. Chicago's at 28.5. Atlanta's at 27. When you look at this race to the bottom, my first instinct is that New York should be in that group, a little bit closer to that group. Uh, in terms of, I think they're just going to be really bad this year. I don't like any of these teams, obviously. If you had to pick, you know, Brooklyn, Chicago, Atlanta, or whoever else you want to throw in there to be the worst team in the East, to be on track for that number one pick, who would you guess it would be? And how much of a role do you think tanking is going to play in that? No, it'll play a huge role. And so Brooklyn has very little motivation to tank, obviously. Uh, that has not necessarily prevented them from shutting guys down in the past, most notably in the last game of last season. But, you know... They have gotten, you know, D'Angelo Russell is a solid upgrade. They've now got a pretty competent perimeter trio, uh, you know, a per- per- perimeter rotation with Russell, Lynn, uh, Karis LeVert, Alan Crabb, Damari Carroll, who, as I noted earlier, RPM rates pretty highly. Their, their front court rotation is still atrocious and worse than last season without Brooke Lopez, but you know, I think they'll be more competitive. I, I think Chicago is the team that probably has the best chance of ultimately tanking. Atlanta, you know, they they kind of have enough okay players that it's going to be hard for them to, like, be really bad at the end of the season unless they just shut those guys down. They might trade off Ilyasova and Dwayne Dedman midseason since those guys are on functionally one-year deals. Uh, Ilyasova is a one-year deal. Dedman has a player option. But Chicago probably has the easiest ability to just start playing a bunch of young guys. They'll cut Dwayne. They'll buy out Dwayne Wade midseason, and it'll be a race to the bottom. Yeah, they have the easiest job to just being absolutely atrocious just by playing their players because <laughs> they have so many bad players is what you were trying to say. That is, yes. Fantastic. This was really enlightening. Was there any other, I guess I should say as a postscript, like was there any of these other teams that either surprised you or any other takeaways that you had from comparing your own personal expectations or Shaney's expectations uh, to RPM in terms of teams that were you know radically different or anybody else that jumped out that we didn't cover? Well, should we talk about Boston? Sure. I mean, we, you know, I've already called them a fake contender with a fake superstar in Gordon Hayward. So, so yeah, I guess then maybe the 49 wins isn't so surprising to you. No, I mean, I think, you know, on balance, uh, I guess what you're saying is their fans thought it was low. Yeah. I mean, you know, they won 52, 53 last year and then added Gordon Hayward. So I think, you know, they were expecting more than that. And they're sort of, you know, the inverse of Minnesota, where instead of starting at 31, Minnesota should have started at 37 or 38. Boston, instead of starting at, you know, 50 plus, whatever they actually won, should have been starting in the high 40s based on their point differential. I guess when I look at it, there's no way Isaiah is going to have as good of a season as he had last year. I mean, some of that is Hayward's arrival. Some of that is just he was unreal last year. Really, really good. Yeah, I mean, he had one of the great offensive seasons, scoring seasons in NBA history. Then I look at, you know, the other stuff. 
you know, Avery leaving for Morris. Like, that's the kind of move, again, where, like, you, you feel like the team did a great job on the big thing, getting Hayward. That came at a cost. Like, there were other minor additions and subtractions going on there below the surface where it doesn't totally shock me that, uh, you know, they're, they're not at a higher bar uh, than last year. I mean, to me, I think they'll probably win more games. You know, I would definitely take the over on 49. I think that the actual Vegas over-under is going to be higher than that. But if Golden State's at 62 and, and Boston's at 49, I mean, I definitely think Golden State's more outrageous number than Boston. Yeah, I suppose that's reasonable. Okay, that sounds great, KP. It sounds like you're ready to get out of here. Thanks for submitting yourself and the RPM system to intense criticism by me. Thanks for visiting, stopping by, and chatting. Uh, I feel like I've been surveilled by a drone. That's, <laughs> that's kind of how I feel at this point. That's what we were going for here. I mean, that's really what we're trying to do. Um, invade your mental privacy <laughs> and all your thoughts about basketball. Uh, everybody, you can follow Kevin on Twitter, at Pelton. Where else can they read your stuff, Kevin? ESPN.com's NBA page. There probably won't be that much of me this month. This is uh, the quietest month of the year for me, but uh, uh, plenty of coverage coming as we start getting closer to training camp. Yeah, only 10 bylines per week probably coming. (laughs) Uh, You've got some grades out for all 30 teams I saw. You've got the RPM projections. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more preview stuff coming. Uh, Guys, you know, to me, I'm biased. I've known this guy for a decade, but if there's one person who I'm looking at from the analytics community to get a benchmark for what are the computers saying, um, what do the smart minds need to know. It's been Kevin since back in the basketball prospectus days. He's getting red here as I say this. He's getting yeah, it's wildly unfair to John Hollinger. Uh, he's getting a little uh, he's getting a little shy, but that's okay. Uh, check out his work, K. Pelton. Any other questions that you have in terms of off-season stuff? Please keep sending them in. I've been getting some great ones. Openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com and don't forget the five-star reviews on apple podcasts we're trying to juice our numbers here during the summer i know there's a lot of hardcore people out there who haven't given up i appreciate hearing from you and please get those votes in all right guys until next week i'll have another special guest then i'm not going to reveal who though i like surprising you Uh, have a great summer take care This has been a digital media production. Find your voice. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.